So with that, let's pray, and we'll, we'll look at Hebrews 7. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for this marvelous letter of Hebrews. It is a sophisticated, apologetic, defending that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the promised one. And Lord, there's so much beauty in this book. There's, there's some places that are just hard uh, sledding, like last week was, was, was difficult for us. But Lord, we understand that the author is making a, a strong case uh, towards Jesus. And so, Father, as we open up the word this morning, we ask that by your spirit you would illuminate the meaning of your word here. We pray that you would help us to understand the significance of what is being said and how it applies to our life this day. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what Christ has done on our behalf, that he has paid the debt in full, that we have access to you, that we have a greater hope than anything that could be offered to us in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would do a work in our lives this day. May we grow to know you evermore uh, through the teaching of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. For on the one hand... There is a setting aside of a for, former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. But with but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I, I mentioned at the end of chapter 6 how, uh, how the author sort of makes this case that when Jesus came, he um, basically ripped out 
the old and started fresh with something new. Um, I referenced this, this little project for the flooding that I have going on in the back of my house. And I, you know, I hired somebody else to do something that I'm terrible at doing. And that's anything in construction that requires like uh, things like terms like plumb, square, uh, level, <laughs> these, these things. And so I had to do this retaining wall. And if I was to do a retaining wall, I'd go, hey, it's kind of, it's flat enough. Let's just start throwing bricks there and we'll balance them. And kind of, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we would not have a good retaining wall. We would probably have a pile of bricks um, the first rain. And uh, this last week, the project's done. I, I, I was just so impressed with this young guy who, who did the work, um, hard, backbreaking work that, uh, you know, that, that first layer of bricks, he's out there with multiple levels and his mallet, making sure that that first row of bricks is perfect. And I look at the poor guy and I'm like, that just looks so terrible. And it's so important to get that first level done. Then once that first level was done, it seemed like it was pretty much easy. It was just a matter of laying all the other ones there. I bring this up because last week, uh, biblically speaking, we did some heavy lifting. We were getting the sort of the foundation laid. I'm thankful that you all came back after last week, but there were it was a, a difficult, difficult passage. Uh, I didn't see any way around it. Um, it, it. It's critical, especially if you were a Jewish person, which none of us are, and even if you're Jewish, it still applies. Like none of us are Jewish, like 2,000 years ago, um, living when the temple is still up and running and operational, and sacrifices are being made, and priests are there um, acting on your behalf, trying to make peace with God. And so for them last week was, was critical, this, this, this foundation for what he's about to say this week was, was needed. As a reminder for last week, uh, to summarize it in a couple sentences, is the author moving from Abraham, which was introduced in the last part of chapter 6, as an example for us to imitate by, uh, for uh, faith, um, the, the story of his life and the promises and how uh, over the course of m- many years, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 to Genesis 17, um, we see his failures and we saw God continuing Uh, to affirm his promise. We see that God spoke it in Genesis 12. God reaffirmed it in Genesis 15 with an oath. By the time we get to Genesis 17, decades later, we see Abraham's faith by raising the sword to take his son's life on the altar. And so from here, Melchizedek is introduced again to us. Melchizedek and Abraham are are totally mingled together in the biblical account. The author of Hebrews refreshed uh, the memory of the readers that Melchizedek was this, uh, this, this priest of the Most High God who was also king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, after war had broken out and Abraham had taken care of some business, sort of freeing his nephew Lot. As he was approaching the east side of Jerusalem, this high priest came down, offered wine and bread. Um, 
offered a blessing to Abraham. Abraham, in return, tithed a tenth of all of his spoils from the war to this priest. And from that, the author of Hebrews builds this strong foundation showing that there are two two priesthood orders. So on the one hand, which is a theme today, there's on the one hand, there was the order of the Levitical priests that descended from Aaron through Moses who received the law. Moses came from Abraham. So we have Abraham, then Moses comes. Through Moses comes the law. From the law, uh, they established the priesthood through the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. So you have all of those priests. The people of Israel would have understood this. Priests and kings, were not, they were not inexchangeable. Uh, kings could come from one line. The, the priests came exclusively from the, uh, the line of Aaron. And so with this information, the author then introduces Melchizedek. And he shows from the story of Genesis 14 that um, Melchizedek had no lineage. We don't know his mother. We don't know his father. We don't know his birth date. We don't know his death date. We don't know where he came from. He just sort of comes on scene. And in that scene, when Melchizedek is introduced next to Abraham, who is the patriarch of Israel, you would naturally assume that Abraham was the greatest of all, being the patriarch. He was the one that was sitting on the Abrahamic covenant. Um, he's the, the father of Israel. And yet it was Melchizedek who gave the blessing to Abraham. He reminded us that it's always the greater that blesses the lesser. And that we see that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek so he showed us that basically in Abraham's DNA existed, you know, years down the road, Aaron, or existed Moses, then Aaron, then the priest who collect tithes from the people. And so he says, in actuality, the, the priests today who are collecting your tithes from amongst their brethren, they were in the loins of Abraham who gave the tithe to Melchizedek. So actually, they even humbled themselves and gave this offering to this greater priesthood. He quoted in verse 17 from Psalm 110, verse 4, which will happen again today, um, from this, this messianic promise that's written by David many, many years after Abraham. We, we see this, this uh, prophecy concerning the Messiah, that they will be, uh, the Messiah will be of the priesthood of Melchizedek and that they will have a perpetual priesthood. So he laid the foundation. Today gets so much easier. T today's passage, if you've done the, the heavy lifting and you've uh, sweat and bled trying to understand the first 17 verses, the last half of Hebrews 7 is, is, is I caught myself getting like emotional reading it this morning. That It's powerful what Christ has done. We are not under the Mosaic law. And there's going to be a bunch of compare and contrasts as we work through the path. There's going to be on the one hand, and then on the other hand, I, I always think of Fiddler on the Roof, you know, when he's talking about his daughter. He's like, on the one hand, there's this. And on the other hand, he's like, there is no other hand. It's, it's, a, it's a funny story, but we'll, we'll see this, this, this logic kind of going back and forth. He's going to be comparing and contrasting uh, really the, 
Melchizedek priesthood order uh, to the Levitical priesthood order. And he's going to start with the law. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So on the one hand, there's the law. There's Moses' teaching. It's almost offensive. Like I, I, I found myself pushing back on this, but I'm like, this is the word of God. I can't really push back on the statement that, it, that it's uselessness. Here, this whoever's writing this is is a strong Jew, like knows the law, loves the law. He says it's uselessness. There's a weakness there, and that the law has been set aside. And we're told that the reason that the law was set aside is that it made nothing perfect. The law never ever existed to bring salvation of itself. It never brought closeness to God. What the law did was is it exposes your sinfulness. It exposes your deep need for a Savior. It exposes that you are hopeless and that you need something greater than yourself. Now, by the time of writing here, the Jewish rabbis, they had so... Uh, manipulated the law as it was intended to, to create a bunch of steps and interpretations that made it feel like individuals could actually keep the law. That, that Like as Paul wrote in Philippians, can you imagine? He says, according to the law, I was blameless. Paul, with a clear conscience before God, thought that he was without sin. I've never experienced that in my life. And I think Paul was legitimately felt that. Now we have on the other hand, this is the other side of the coin, the, other, the argument, and on the other hand there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So on the other side of the coin there's a, there's a better hope. This better, this is a key word throughout Hebrews. Hebrews is this apologetic, this defense that Jesus is the Messiah. He's better than everything. And so here he offers a better hope. And the better hope is this access to God that we can draw near to God. Now behind me is a picture of modern day Israel. And uh, it's during one of the feasts. Um, It's a a beautiful location. If you haven't been, I, I hope that you guys can make the next trip. You know, we're about a year and a half out to the next trip to Israel. And so what, what we're looking at is all of the little dots down there, those are people. That's like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. You see a barricade kind of down the middle. That's because these are females and these are males. They're separated. You have a, a ramp to the right, which you've seen probably in the news of, of the, the stabbing that happened in the, the mosque area, which is on the backside. Uh, this is the security to get in. The Dome of the Rock is to the left. Um, the, the Dome of the Rock is, in that general area, there's some debate, um, but that's the, 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 the top of Mount Moriah, which is where, um, where, where Abraham would have sacrificed or about to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, a, a number of critical things happened up there. And so 
The reason I show this picture is when you go to Israel, this is one of those sites that just is sort of overwhelming. Um, the, the history there, the, the, the beauty, um, the, the layers of things that happened, and, and you'll, we never, I always avoid the crowds, just that's my general mantra in life. And so when we go, there'll be like nobody here. There'll be a handful of people up front. But you'll have an opportunity to walk down. And the guys on the left, you'll, you'll walk down. There's a little bucket with community yarmulkes, the little white ones. And you'll grab your little yarmulke. And you'll try to balance on your head because we're not accustomed to wearing yarmulkes. And, and uh, you'll go down to the, the, the big wall. And you'll kind of like touch it because that's what you're supposed to do. People touch the wall. There's little cracks in the stones. And you can write a little prayer. And you can put it in there. And... and and of course, I went through. I went through all the motions, and you know, you're in the midst of Jews who are very serious and very intense, and and they're praying with zeal and in this intensity that's hard to describe. And I'm I'm down there with balancing my yarmulke, holding the wall, like, get my picture, get my picture. This is great for Facebook. Get my picture, like, and we're like all snapping pictures, and and it's like, hey, it's really fun. But for me, there's something that's different. And, and I remember talking to some Jewish people that were there, and, and, it, and it's like, you know, I, I thank you for allowing me to come down and take my picture and, and, and to see it and enjoy it, but like, what, what is it about this place for you? And the intensity and the, the rocking, and the, the one guy I talked to, he's like, well, the, to, for us, the significance of this wall is beyond the wall by the Dome of the Rock. It is the closest physical location that they have access to to get to where the presence of God was at one point in history. That they knew that the presence of God was like over there. And this is the closest that they can get to the presence of God. Now we've we've not we I didn't do anything but they've we can go visit you'll get an opportunity they've now excavated some tunnels and you can go down below to the tunnels and there's a tunnel basically under the dome of the rock where you can touch the wall over there and then there's this group of people the Jewish people doing the same thing and see as I've been studying this week imagining myself being a Jewish person during that time where offerings were being made on your behalf. The whole approach, you would approach from the southern wall, the whole way in there, there'd be mikvahs, which are the baptismal tanks. You would have to be cleansed multiple times. There are barriers the whole way showing you the vast distinction between you and God and the huge separation. That you could get into the temple grounds, us Gentiles, the Jews could get a little bit closer, and in the temple area, the priests could go closest, but then only the high priest could actually enter into the holiest of holies. Everything was separated from God. So there's this longing for the closest to God. Everything is set up. The whole purpose of the law is to show you God is different from you. God is holy. You can't access God. And the priest's job, they stood there to make these sacrifices continually over and over and over again hoping to appease for your sins so that you might have favor with God. I can totally imagine that the, 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 
the, the, the feeling of falling short. Going and making your sacrifice, and by the time I turn around, be like, oh, well, that's, I'm still in need of doing this again. I, I, I don't know about you, but man, I have struggled to, to comprehend this reality that there's a closeness to God in Christ. That in Christ, it is impossible for me to get any closer to him. That Jesus on the cross, the veil was torn, that we have access. And so when I go to the wall and I'm taking my selfies, the reason I'm like that is because as a Christian, I'm told that when I believed in Christ, that the Spirit of God sealed me and that God's Spirit is within me. And so whether I'm at that wall or I'm in Valley Center, you know, weed whacking my weeds, this, the Spirit of God is with me. This is talk about a better hope through which we draw near to God. And the author's making the case with this access through Jesus, who's the Messiah, why in the world would you drift back to a system that shows you and reminds you that you're separate from God and that you can't get as close as you need to be? And so from the law, he's going to transition to the priest. In verse 20, he writes, And and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, speaking about the priest, for they indeed became priests without an oath. Okay. I'm probably going to say this a couple times throughout this, but so on the one hand, the priest. They had no oath. Um, how they became priests is that when Moses created sort of the structure of Israel, there was Aaron, and from Aaron, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood would, would, uh, would, would come from. And so basically, if you were born as a male under Aaron, you're a priest. No, no, don't worry, son, what you're about to do when you grow up. You're a priest. That's what you do. Uh, th- I mean, the... There, there's no spiritual litmus test. You could study under different rabbis to get higher credentials or better credentials, but but essentially, if your bloodline said you were a priest, you were a priest. There was no oath from God. There was no uh, really anything. So, in as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. They did this were they were born into it. But on the other hand, but he, Jesus, with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So where's this oath? This is a continuation from Psalm 110, verse 4. At the reference of oath, it sort of takes us back to the whole situation with with Abraham, the the faith... um, I think it was two weeks ago we looked at Abraham's faith, how he endured. Um, He was given God's word, which is good enough in itself. That was Genesis 12. Uh, He stumbled along the way. Then in Genesis 15, God coupled his word with an oath. And that oath was when he told Abraham, hey, go collect all these animals and come back. Abraham's like, "Uh uh-oh, this is an oath that I can't keep. And he was terrified. And we're told that God put him into a deep sleep. The animals were split in half. The blood drained into the valley. 
And then we see that God by himself walked back and forth in the blood, demonstrating that the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral uh, oath, that it was totally and completely dependent on God and his character. What Abraham did had nothing to do with whether this covenant would be fulfilled or not. And so from here, we're introduced to this new oath, which is fascinating to me that our salvation in Christ is so similar. Our, our salvation isn't conditional on what you do or don't do. Our salvation is totally and exclusively dependent on what Christ did on our behalf on the cross. You either respond in faith, believing, or you reject. But the actual work of salvation is totally dependent on what God did on your behalf and my behalf. This whole story, I don't even know how, Jesus and Abraham and ticking off the Jewish people of his time, it's, it's all sort of commingled. If you were to go to John 8, and, and probably for your own study, um, there's the great I am statement where Jesus, you know, it's one of the times that they tried to kill him for blasphemy. And so as Jesus is sort of going back and forth with the Jews arguing, he, um, at one point he says, man, you guys are like, this is just my translation of it. <laughs> uh, you guys are really missing the boat. I mean, Abraham, when he heard about me, he rejoiced to see my day. And they're like, man, what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. And so why 50 years old is kind of important because remember last week we said the priest, at 30 they became priests, and at 50 is when their priesthood ended. That was their lifespan. Uh, Jesus was probably 30. They're like, you're, you're a young whippersnapper. How, like, who are you to say that before Abraham, like, how could Abraham, what? And to that is what Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. In order to be I am, that means that he is everlasting. And so the, the Jews picked up stones as they should have to try to execute Jesus. Um, as they should have, I should expand on that. If, if he was just a man and he made that claim, that's a capital punishment offense. But the thing is, Jesus actually did exist because Jesus is fully God. Um, so back to this. So on the one hand, there's no oath with the, with, with the Levitical priest. On the other hand, there's an oath, Psalm 110, verse 4. Then the oath is that the Father is speaking, coming through King David, speaking of the future Messiah, says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest for order, forever of the order of Melchizedek. So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is the unilateral covenant. Jesus is the guarantor of our salvation. He is the one that paid it all. He is the one that made everything possible for us. Um, this week, Melanie had asked me, you know, Melanie's in Bible college, and she'd asked me, hey, do you have any commentaries on, on Romans? I've been given this assignment on Romans 3, 21 through 26. I'm like, oh, that's a great verse. Yeah, I got all sorts of commentaries. And I'm like, well, let me just go back and read it. So if you guys will turn with me over to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. When I read it on Wednesday night, I was like, Melanie, thank you so much. This is like, this ties in 
to what's being said here. Because the case that's being made is that Jesus is of of a totally different order. He's of the order of Melchizedek. He is not of the order of of the priesthood that came out of the law. And so when you read Romans 3.21, check out what it says. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first thing it says is this righteousness of God has manifested itself. It's appeared. What did the law have to do with it? Nothing. It was distinct from the law, but the law bore witness. The law and the prophets bore witness that this righteousness is true, even though this righteousness did not come from within its ranks. It is distinct. It's a totally different order. Verse uh, verse 24, continuing, being justified. Some have quipped that this is just as if I'd never sinned. I think that's too simple because you have sinned. Uh, but God's righteousness has been credited to your account even though you are a filthy sinner. I'm talking to myself. You've been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, which means satisfaction, that God was satisfied with the offering that was made. In his blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can go back to Hebrews, but that just and justifier... Jesus is just. He's the one. God is requiring the wrath of God to come down on sin. Not only is he just because it's happening, he's the one that's the justifier because he allowed the wrath of God to be demonstrated on himself so that he would be the sacrifice once and for all. Okay, going back to Hebrews to verse 23, continuing with this thought. He says, the former priests on the one hand, there we have the, the on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So when you look at the Levitical priesthood, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of priests over history. The reason is, is that they continued to resupply them because they continued to die. They were really useless. But on the other hand, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he holds the priesthood permanently. So on the other hand, Melchizedek's priesthood, the order that Jesus comes from, there's only one priest. That's why we don't call me priest. That's why you shouldn't call any pastor priest. There's one priest, and it's Jesus. And he exists perpetually forever as the one and only priest. Therefore, verse 25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this is beautiful. Because Jesus is a perpetual priest, because he has an oath, when you go to him, you're able to draw near to God because he's a better hope. But the salvation he offers is permanent. I think of this uh, Psalm 51, a beautiful psalm of, of repentance. But David prays, Lord, don't take your spirit from me like that it would disappear. We as Christians, if you've received the spirit, you're sealed by the spirit. You're 
God's not going to take it from you. Or take him from you, I should say. If you're in Christ, it's a permanent salvation. And also that he intercedes for us. Imagine that, that the creator of the universe is at heaven with the Father. It's, it blows my mind to think that Jesus is up there praying for me and you. Romans 8.34 says the same thing, that he's interceding. Also, we're told in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, that each of us in Christ have the most powerful attorney on retainer. We're told that Jesus is our advocate in heaven. An advocate is an attorney. And if you go to the scene in Revelation, you see that the accuser, Satan, is before the Father, accusing each of us of our sins, of our guiltiness. Totally accurate, because we're all sinners. We all fall short. We, we, we all miss the mark. But if you're in Christ, if you've received his forgiveness, if you've re- accepted his gift, we're told that as the accuser is making accusations against you before the Father in heaven, you have an advocate. And he's saying, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that one, too. And that one, and that one. My list is really long. Um, But Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to my account so that when God sees me, he sees the blood that was shed on the cross on my behalf. It's beautiful. Now he's going to look at Jesus. For it was fitting, verse 26, to have such a high priest. Look how Jesus is described. Holy innocent, undefiled. This is the perfect offering. This is, this is Jesus without sin, without defect, without any impurity. It, he is as pure as you can possibly become. Separated from sinners, he's not a part of creation. He is the creator. So he is not one of us in the sense we are all created God is separate from his creation. God doesn't exist, like, you know, like the, I'm off subject, but God is everywhere. God is all creating, but he's distinct from his creation. I don't want to get into animism. I don't want to, so just shut up, Gunnar, and move on. Um, He's separated from sinners and and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like the high priest, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So this is on the one hand, but on the other hand. But worded in a different way. See, now the priest, they would continually, time and time again, they would take an animal, they would slit its throat, they bleed it out, they would lay their hands on it as a reminder of their own sins, their own need uh, for a penalty for their sins. They would do it for the sins of the people. And they would do it perpetually because there was never anything accomplished in their sacrificial system. But on the other hand, Jesus, how many sacrifices did he make? He did it once. Not for himself because there was no need for him to make a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. He was pure. He was undefiled. But he died once for all when he offered himself up or offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came came after the law appoints 
a son made perfect forever. So there's three reasons in this, in this section given for the superiority of Christ as high priest. Number one, he is sinless in nature and character. Number two, his sacrifice was once and for all, period. Totally sufficient for our sins, for payment. Number three, Jesus is superior in power and nature. He is perfect perpetually. Why in the world would we go back to anything else? Yet it's been said that after every revival, man drifts back away from God. I want to end with a story that Jesus told. If you'd turn with me to Luke chapter 18, the sort of lead into communion. Jesus tells a parable, I think contrasting what they had turned the law into compared to what the law was supposed to do. And so in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we read, And he, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some of the people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Paul the Apostle, um, who said that according to the law, he was blameless, how they'd worked out this whole system to sort of manipulate the law to build themselves up. And he says in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There's nothing worse than a tax collector. You legally could lie to a tax collector because they were such scoundrels. A family member would automatically just disown somebody if they were a tax collector. In verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And this is a prayer that the recipients that Jesus is talking to would identify. They would sort of say, amen, amen, amen. This is, this is a godly man right here. They had taken the law, they had manipulated the law to build themselves up and to beat others down. But then in verse 13, we come to the tax collector. And this tax collector had experienced exactly what the law was designed to do. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if you allow the word of God, if you allow the law, to function as it was intended. You know, we so easily say, oh, I need to keep the Ten Commandments. When you start reviewing the Ten Commandments, if we're honest with ourselves, none of us can keep any of them. If you make a, 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 a good, solid 
you know, college attempt at trying to keep the, the law of the Old Testament. It won't take you long to realize what a terrible failure you are and how sinful you are within. And if you allow yourself to be honest and to evaluate who you are deep within you, when you experience the gospel, when you hear the good news that Jesus came apart from the law, not as a continuation of the law, that he did what you can't do, that it was totally, completely contingent on his ability, not yours. That he would go to Calvary, that he would be nailed to that cross, that the the weight of God's wrath would be laid upon him for the sin of the world, and that he would absorb it totally and completely so that the wrath of God was satisfied. We're told that he went to the grave and on the third day he rose, he'd conquered death to show his eternal priesthood. And this is the priest that we're called to serve. This order of grace, it's, it's, it's more than my brain can really fathom. As I read uh, through Hebrews, two things have really gripped me uh, through this study so far. Um, The first is to pay attention to what God has said. I'm convicted more and more to like be a student of the word, to to allow the word of God to speak into my life, to to, to minister to my soul, to, to humble me, and to be really sensitive to his words. And then the second thing that that is jumping out is to um, cling to what God has done. Don't cling to your own works. Don't cling to your own capacity, your own goodness. You don't have any. That we're to cling to the cross. We're to cling to what Jesus has done. And so today we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward as we take communion. Um, And as they distribute the elements, just... I think this is a good time for us just to pause and to, to reflect, to confess your sin. If you've never trusted in Christ, it's as simple as believing. And so just take this time as they're passing out the elements to, to reflect inward and hold on to the elements and we'll say a few more things. the end of uh, John chapter 6. Jesus had been challenging a a huge group of followers about his body being broken and, and saying difficult things to them, and many of them turned away. In John 6, verse 66, we read, uh, as a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So when we hold this cracker, it's a it's a symbol, it's a picture, it's, it's to remind us what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. The 
the, the juice is, is really a reminder of this new covenant, this better covenant of hope that we have with him. Access to God. It's a reminder, it's a picture of the gospel. That this access we have isn't because of anything that we have done. It's because of what he did for us. That his body was broken according to the scriptures for payment of our sins. He was buried and he rose. And as we trust in that, as we place our faith in him, we're told that we're sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. So communion is first a time for us to reflect, to confess, to remember the foundation that it's totally about him. We're also challenged to, um, as we take this, to proclaim the good news that there's a dying world out there or I should say there's a dead world out there spiritually, and that God has chosen us, his followers, to be his ambassadors, and that we're called to go and to tell of what he has done. So, Father, as we take communion today, we ask that you would renew within our hearts a passion for what you've done for us. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand the magnitude of what you've done. Father, I pray that you would free us uh, from the bondage of, of thinking that in Christ we are still slaves to sin, that we're still under condemnation. Father, I pray that you would help us to experience the life that you've called us to live that our lives would be transformed, that we would be a light to the world around us. Father, we pray for our church fellowship here, that we would be united around you, that we would be united in the mission of growing in our relationship with you and going to the lost around us. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.